Last year, we had the distinguished uh, journalist Patrick Coburn uh, speaking with us. And this year, we've excelled, excelled ourselves even more in terms of our, our next speaker. Um, Lara Marlowe is a Paris-based foreign correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper. She has written extensively on the rise of Islamic State and covered jihadist attacks in Paris and Tunisia in 2015. Indeed, her article yesterday on the, uh, on the tensions of jihadism within Paris, within France, is, is, uh, was, is quite shocking. As a journalist for more than three decades, she has lived in Paris, the Middle East, and Washington, D.C., where she covered Barack Obama's first term in office. Marlowe holds degrees from UCLA, the Sorbonne, and Oxford, and has won three press awards. She's the author of The Things I've Seen, Nine Lives of a Foreign Correspondent, and Painted with Words. The French government made her Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur for her contributions to the Franco-Irish relations. I'd like to, you all to welcome Lara Marlowe. Thank you, Fiek. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be in the Abbey Theatre again. It's been a while. Um, I thought I would start with a quote from André Malraux, the great French writer and statesman, because he predicted that the 21st century would be a century of religion, or it would not be at all. Now, the emergence of an extremist caliphate straddling Iraq and Syria and the terror sown by jihadists in France last year seemed like a fulfillment of Malraux's prophecy. I chose the title Fatal Attraction because more than any modern Western nation, France has been drawn to the Middle East and Arab North Africa time and time again. Her historical, seemingly contradictory status as both the eldest daughter of the church and the cradle of the Enlightenment lie at the heart of the jihadist hatred for France. The Crusaders were so predominantly French that the Arabic word for Crusaders remains Alfrange, the Franks. Louis IX, Saint-Louis, the only French king to have been canonized, died of dysentery on the Ninth Crusade. In their claim of responsibility for the November 13 attacks that killed 130 people in Paris, Islamic State used the words crusades or crusaders four times and warned that, open quote, France and those who follow her path remain the principal targets of Islamic State. For a thousand years, France has been the protector of Christians in the Middle East. France intervened in the 1860 Mountain War in Lebanon on behalf of the Maronite Catholics and in 1920 carved the state of Greater Lebanon out of what had been the Ottoman province of Syria as a gift to their Maronite friends. When Islamic State massacred Iraqi Christians in 2014, France offered them asylum. Most of France seems to have forgotten the Crusades, the 1920 to 1946 Syrian mandate, and the 1830 to 1962 occupation of Algeria. But for many Muslims, history is a festering wound. When France began bombing Islamic State in Syria last September, few recalled that the French army fought Syrian insurgents in the 1920s, or that France ended her mandate with a 36-hour continuous bombardment of Damascus that claimed hundreds of Arab lives. 
More than any other colonial power, the French believed in their mission civilisatrice, their civilizing mission. During the Syrian mandate, for example, Paris boasted of having modernized a backward land of conserving antiquities, the very ruins in Palmyra that Islamic State has reveled in destroying. France brought electricity and potable water. They built tramways, roads, railways, hotels, restaurants, cinemas, and schools. In the minds of many Frenchmen, this gift of civilization to the Levant and North Africa more than compensated for the land seizures and the discrimination against the indigenous population. In 2005, a right-wing French government passed a law ordering teachers to emphasize the, quote, positive aspects of colonization. A deeply ingrained distrust of Islam goes hand in hand with the French conviction of the superiority of their republican values, chief among them laïcité, which means state-enforced secularism. A rift within the Socialist Party over the nature of secularism widened this week with a dispute between Prime Minister Manuel Valls and Jean-Louis Bianco, who's a socialist old-timer and the president of the government's observatory of secularism. Since the Charlie Hebdo massacre, French officials and intellectuals have demanded repeatedly that Muslims condemn the attacks. Bianco had been criticized by Valls for inviting Muslim organizations, which Valls thought were sectarian, to sign a statement condemning the November 13 attacks. Now, this is how Bianco responded in an interview with Le Monde. He said, open quote, those who distort secularism are those who make it anti-religious and an anti-Muslim tool, i.e., he's referring to the prime minister. It is true that a fundamentalist secularist reaction has been developing in France these last few years. Folk memories of the 8th century Battle of Tours, when Charles Martel repelled Muslim invaders, and the Battle of Roncevaux, which was actually a conflict between Christians romanticized by oral tradition into a major conflict between Christians and Muslims, are conjured up every time a Frenchman sings La Marseillaise. I quote from the first stanza of the French national anthem. They are coming into our midst to cut the throats of your sons and consorts. To arms, citizens, form your battalions, march, march, let impure blood soak our furrows. That impure blood, of course, is the blood of Muslims. Islamic State kidnapped four French journalists in its northern Syrian capital of Raqqa in 2013. They were freed the following Easter after a ransom was paid. One is a close friend of mine, Nicolas Inan. We had just celebrated his marriage in August 2014 when Islamic State began a grisly series of videotaped executions with the decapitation of the American journalist James Foley. <coughs> Excuse me, one second. I'm just gonna have a sip of water. In the intervening period, the war in Syria has become personal to the French public. Some 1,800 French youths are involved in jihadist networks. At least 150 have died in Syria. Islamic State's message, the mother of a jihadist told me, is, open quote, we're stealing your children, we're draining your life force. 
Thousands of French people knew someone who was killed or wounded in the November 13 attacks. A year earlier, they had the shock of seeing Maxime Auchard, a 22-year-old Frenchman from Normandy, renamed Abu Abdullah al-Faransi, participate in the decapitation of 18 Syrian pilots. By March 2015, Paris had already been through the trauma of the Charlie Hebdo massacres. France was nonetheless horrified when a 12-year-old schoolboy called Ryan from an immigrant suburb of Toulouse was videotaped shooting an alleged Israeli spy point blank in the head. The child then fired several bullets into his victim's body. And this videotape was seen by his schoolmates in Toulouse. The government says a quarter of the eight, those 1,800 French people whom I mentioned are, are converts to Islam. It's not uncommon to meet people who've had family members convert to Islam. In November 2014, five months after Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi proclaimed his caliphate, I met a woman called Marie, the mother of a jihadist whom I mentioned a few moments ago. Her son, Timothée, who was 22 years old then, had converted to Islam and left for Syria two months earlier. Marie, her husband, and her elder son were devastated, but they hoped against hope that they could persuade their prodigal son to come home. Now, one expects young people to be more liberal and open-minded than their elders, but the jihad generation are extremely conservative. Marie told me how her son, who had been baptized, thirsted for the rigid morality dictated by fundamentalist Islam. Around the time he converted, he was appalled when France legalized same-sex marriage. The three Bethnal Green girls who left London to marry jihadists in Raqqa said they wanted to leave an immoral society to join one which they equated with virtue and meaning. French law says that returning jihadists must be imprisoned, but Prime Minister Valls announced in December that some 250 jihadists who've returned from Syria are on the loose in France. It's a chilling revelation because almost all of the 10 men who carried out the November 13 massacre had trained in Syria. Most were on watch list, yet Belgian and French intelligence services were incapable of preventing their return or foreseeing their murderous rampage. After the Charlie Hebdo massacre, Marie, the mother of the jihadists, told me that she would rather her son died in Syria than that he committed an atrocity in France. Over lunch in mid-January, she told me she had last communicated with her son just after the November 13 attacks. He always used the same argument, that Islamic State acted in self-defense, that the attacks on Paris were retaliation for worse atrocities by France in Syria. Three days after our lunch, I received a sad text message from Marie. We're in shock, she wrote. A stranger had informed her via WhatsApp that Timothée was dead. And I quote her message to me, without a precise date or place, cruel and impossible to verify. Islamic State sometimes announces the death of jihadists before they carry out suicide attacks in Europe. The family of Abdul Hamid Abaoud, who was the, allegedly the mastermind of the November 13 attacks, received a similar message two months before the slaughter. His family said they hoped it was true that he was dead. Marie has no way of knowing if Timothée is about to be used for a suicide attack. She will probably never receive proof of his death or retrieve his body.
Islamic State, or those inspired by it, have carried out massacres in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. But the jihadist conflict with France seems freighted with more resentment, anger, and emotion. Their so-called holy war is inside and from France as well as against France. By coincidence, the words terrorism and terrorist were coined in France in 1794. They designate the doctrine espoused by partisans of the terror, the year-long period of extreme violence during the French Revolution and supporters of that terror. France and the jihadist seem locked in a wrestler's hold, a mutual fascination and loathing which neither can escape. Olivier Roy of the European University Institute in Florence described the Charlie Hebdo attacks as, I quote, a will to create a point of no return in the fracture between Islam and the West, unquote. I feel that there's a mutual desire for separation, but France and the jihadists are too entangled to free themselves from each other's hold. As I covered the attacks in Paris last year, I thought long and hard about why France, and I came up with the following answers. The first is the sheer size of France's Muslim population, which is the largest in Europe. And France also has the continent's largest Jewish population. Their coexistence is difficult. Interior Minister Bernard Cazeneuve announced this week that acts against the Muslim community tripled to around 400 last year, while the anti-Semitic acts decreased slightly to 806. The French government had to ban marches during the 2014 Israeli assault on Gaza after members of the Jewish Defense League clashed with pro-Palestinian demonstrators. It is illegal to collect ethnic or religious statistics in France, but Muslims are believed to number about 8 million, the legacy of French colonization of Arab North Africa. Now, I talked earlier about France's fought, fraught history with Islam, but I believe personally that the 1954 to 1962 Algerian War was the single most significant episode. The right-wing Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, the OAS, and the Front de Libération Nationale, the FLN, staged bombings and assassinations in Paris. Like the Syrian war at present, the Algerian war came to Paris. Almost all the French Muslims who've attacked their own country were the children of Algerians. Khaled Kelkal was France's first homegrown terrorist, gunned down by gendarmes near Lyon in 1995, 20 years ago. His fingerprints had been found on several homemade bombs. When Le Monde investigated Kelkal's life and death 20 years later, they tracked down his uncle in Algeria. Uh, and Kelkal's uncle told the newspaper, open quote, on February 6, 1962, my father was shot in cold blood by a French soldier in front of a cafe. The bullet hit his heart for no reason. 30 years later, his grandson Khaled was shot dead by a gendarme. His death proves that France still hates Algerians. Mohamed Merah, the son of Algerian immigrants who started the present wave of jihadist violence in 2012, by killing seven people, including three Jewish children, in Toulouse and Montauban, attacked the Odzar HaTorah Jewish School on March 19, 2012, 
It was the 50th anniversary of the ceasefire in the Algerian War. Although there were French citizens born in France, the Kouachi brothers, who carried out the Charlie Hebdo massacre, referred to the French by the derogatory slang term, c'est francs, and forbade their sister from dating Frenchmen. The presence of a large Muslim population who do not identify with France, combined with a stagnant economy and high unemployment, will continue to provide a reservoir for jihadists for years to come. Official talk of breaking the apartheid of the French banlieue evaporated after the November 13 attacks. France's high profile in foreign and defense policy has also made it a target for jihadists. The country's last two presidents abandoned General Charles de Gaulle's so-called Arab policy and leaned in favor of Israel, although through repeated attacks on Gaza and the advent of the most right-wing Israeli government ever. President Francois Hollande has engaged France in more wars than any other president of the Fifth Republic. In Mali, the Central African Republic, the Sahel region, Iraq, and Syria. Hollande even adopted George W. Bush's term, the war on terror, for his war against jihadism. Though Britain and Germany joined in the Syrian war after the November 13 attacks, it remains mainly a Franco-American operation. As the French academic Gilles Capel says, the mere juxtaposition of the terms French and jihad seems like an aberration. In his new book, which is called Terror in the Hexagon, Genesis of French Jihad, Keppel establishes a parallel chronology between the progression of international jihad and the radicalization of French Muslims over the last four decades. The US and Saudi Arabia launched the present form of extreme Sunni jihadism in 1979 against the Soviets in Afghanistan and as a counterweight to the Iranian Revolution. The Mujahideen drove the Soviets out in 1989, then staged failed insurgencies in Algeria and Egypt in the 1990s. The Al-Qaeda atrocities of 9-11 and attempts to turn the US occupation of Iraq into a new Vietnam followed. 2005 was the turning point, the beginning of the third generation of jihad. In that year, Abu Musab al-Suri published a 1,600-page global Islamic resistance call, urging jihadists to exploit the presence of large, disaffected Muslim populations in Europe, which he called the soft underbelly of the West. 2005 also saw the advent of YouTube, which after the facts and satellite television became the jihadist medium of choice. YouTube received its commercial license in California on February 14, 2005, the same day that the Lebanese leader, Rafiq al-Hariri, was assassinated by the Syrian Hezbollah alliance. That was the opening shot in the Sunni-Shia-Saudi-Iranian war. Over the same period, the first generation of Muslim immigrants to France worked hard and kept their faith to themselves. The second generation, who were close to the Muslim Brotherhood, tried and failed to prevent the banning of the Muslim headscarf in French schools. A whole decade which might have been used to integrate Muslims was squandered in disputes over hijab and halal meat. The third generation was figuratively born, this is the third generation of, of French Muslims, 
with the 2005 riots, which was sparked by the, elec sorry, uh, the electrocution of two teenagers in a power substation, but also by the perception that the French forces desecrated a mosque in the Paris suburb of Montfermeil, where they, they fired tear gas. Thereafter, a growing number of French Muslims turned to Salafist preachers who advocated the most strict observance of Islam. To maintain peace, French officials often cooperated with Qaeds or gang leaders in the banlieue, in the schools, and in the prisons. A significant number of the Qaeds converted to radical Islam. French prisons became an incubator for jihad. Youths who entered as drug dealers or car thieves often emerged as Islamic extremists. In the most startling example, Jamal Begal, who's a mentor of French jihadist, was imprisoned at Fleury-Mérogis with Sherif Kouachi and Ahmedi Koulibaly in 2005. Ten years later, Kouachi and Koulibaly coordinated the Charlie Hebdo and Hypercacher massacres in Paris. France is now bracing itself for further attacks. One of the most surprising aspects of this tense situation is the apparent lack of interest in understanding how the cradle of the Enlightenment found itself under attack from its own citizens. At a meeting with the representative council of Jewish institutions in France, the CRIF, on January 9, Prime Minister Valls said, open quote, for these enemies who turn on their compatriots, who tear up the contract that unites us, there can be no worthwhile explanation for to explain means wanting to excuse. After the 9-11 attacks, the Quran became a bestseller in the US. In France, Voltaire's Treatise on Tolerance was the best-selling book after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. In November, it was Ernest Hemingway's Pay On to Paris, A Movable Feast. The French public apparently wanted to reassure itself of their superiority. They did not want to delve into the twisted minds that carried out the massacres. They had no interest in transforming French society so that young people would not want to join Islamic State. French cinemas canceled a film titled Made in France by the Franco-Algerian director Nicolas Boukrieff because the scenario too closely resembled the November 13 attacks. The novelist Michel Walbeck said just before the, the Charlie Hebdo attack that, I quote, Islam is not a subject that one can really debate here, unquote. The stability and cohesion of French society feel more fragile than at any time since I first moved to France nearly 40 years ago. Prime Minister Valls said this morning in Davos that the state of emergency will be prolonged, and I quote him, as long as necessary until we get rid of Daesh, and Daesh is the, the word the French use to indicate Islamic State. The state of emergency gives police unlimited powers to search and impose house arrest. It has been used not only against Muslims, but against environmental activists during the COP21 climate conference in December. Well over 100 people have been charged with defending terrorism, an offense that can carry a five-year prison sentence and a 75,000 euro fine. It's enough to say, vive Daesh, the name for Islamic State, 
or je suis Koulibaly, or je suis Kouachi, uh, the names of the perpetrators of the Charlie Hebdo massacres to be charged with defending terrorism. Last October, decisions by the Court of Cassation made it illegal to call for a boycott against Israel. 14 members of the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions campaign, BDS, were condemned to pay 28,000 euros in damages to civil plaintiffs, making France the only democracy in the world where calling for boycott is an offense. Prime Minister Valls supports legal action against those who want to boycott Israel. And not all the infringements on the freedom of expression come from the government. Reporters Without Borders and Liberation newspaper had to cancel the art sale that they had scheduled for January 27, um, five days from now. The Israeli embassy protested strongly against a work by Ernest Pignon Ernest, which showed the imprisoned Palestinian activist Marwan Barghouti. Pignon Ernest had written the following text over the photo of Barghouti. In 1980, when I drew Mandela, they told me he was a terrorist, unquote. There's an interesting debate among academics over the nature of jihadism. Olivier Roy, who I quoted earlier regarding the fracture between Islam and the West, says we are seeing the Islamicization of radicalism, that in the 1970s or 1980s, the young people who've rallied to Islamic State would have joined left-wing revolutionary groups, uh, like the Red Brigades, for example, or Bader Meinhof. And Gilles Capel, the, another leading expert, says that's nonsense. He says what we're seeing is, not the, is, is the radicalization of Islam, not the Islamization of radicalism. I suspect that both of them are right in their way, although they're insulting each other fairly regularly. Um, the most important debate, though, is the one about the future. The optimist, including uh, the former foreign minister, Hubert Vedrine and Gilles Kepel, say that Islamic State will be short-lived. Their caliphate lost Sinjar and Ramadi, a significant amount of territory last year. They've had to reduce the salaries of their fighters. They now have four or five members of the Security Council, all of them except China, uh, fighting against them in Syria. The slaughter of November 13, galvanized international opinion against Islamic State and will hamper its ability to, to recruit, says Kepel. The French military is probably more realistic. Uh, open quote, we're facing a war of a new type. General Pierre de Villiers, the chief of staff of the French armed forces, said this week, the battle will be long. Our military strategy requires patience. The coalition against Islamic State cannot agree on its objectives. It has no ground troops to hold territory in the event that Islamic State retreats because of aerial bombardments. Most of all, the coalition has no political alternative <coughs> to govern up to 10 million people who are currently under Islamic State rule. Academics say that terrorism occurs in waves lasting approximately a decade during which violence rises, climaxes, and declines. We don't know if last year's attacks in Paris were the apogee of Islamic State's atrocities or just a beginning. Islamic State is a different creature from earlier terrorist movements. Unlike its predecessor, Al-Qaeda, it holds territory, which it is actively colonizing. 
it not only does it use artillery, massed forces, and tanks, it is building a state with civil servants, tax collectors, and a welfare system that provides housing, healthcare, and education. Added to that, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf sheikdoms have bankrolled the propagation of the strictest form of Sunni Islam from the Philippines to Niger <coughs> for the past 40 years. That fundamentalist Sunni ideology is now entrenched throughout the Sunni world. Just one more paragraph. <laughs> I hope my, my voice will hold up. <coughs> when the Bolshevik revolution occurred a century ago, it terrified the rest of the world, much as Islamic State does today. No one had the means or the will to eradicate the Soviet Union. So the West opted instead for containment. That seems to be the path that we are following now with Islamic State. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lara. There's a microphone there. <clears throat> so we've about 10 minutes. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and then I'd, I'd love our audiences to contribute. There are roving mics around as well. Um, I think we're getting a bleak picture at the moment. We had uh, Gideon Levy earlier on looking at a, a bleak scenario that's happening in kind of the geopolitical world. C can you, the, just in terms of national politics, sometimes, as Tip O'Neill says, all politics is local. What's the impact? of this on the national political scene in France? Well, not only in France, also in America, where you have Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, uh, it has greatly strengthened the extreme right. Um, the National Front, led by Marine Le Pen, got 6.8 million votes in the regional elections in December. Now, because of the quirks of the French electoral system, they didn't win any regions, uh, but it's still their highest score ever. And Marine Le Pen is almost certain to be in the runoff in the French presidential election in 2017. And frankly, if we get Nicolas Sarkozy and Francois Hollande, again, the same two guys from last time, uh, both as candidates, and Marine Le Pen, it's, it's unlikely, but it's not totally impossible that she could win. I mean, the, the, the National Front is now getting between 25 and 30% um, approval ratings in opinion polls, which is much higher than ever, ever before. So it's really strengthened the, the National Front. The socialists are aping the policies of the right. Um, the biggest debate going on now in France, which is really absurd, is about whether or not they should revoke the nationality of uh, terrorists who have who have dual nationality. They can't, you can't make someone an, an um, apatride, how you say, a, a stateless person, right? You, know, you, can't, you can't turn someone into a stateless person. So it would only apply to people who have, say, uh, Algerian and French or Moroccan and French. And this was a measure that Marine Le Pen had been asking for for years and years and years. And Francois Hollande is doing it now. Um, and the, the state of emergency, the National Front thinks is great. So, you know, the, the socialists are copying the extreme right. And, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine's father, always said, if people are given the choice between the copy and the original, they'll choose the original. 
Um, so this is, and, and the National Front and the, and the jihadists feed each other. You know, it's interesting, they even have the same pool of young men, they recruit so young men of the same age from the same socioeconomic groups. And the, the racism and Islamophobia of the extreme right drives more people to extreme Islam and, and then the attacks drive more people to the extreme right. So it's a vicious circle. And just to uh, help our audiences and myself indeed, can you, can you document or, or, or list the cities in France that you, f you feel has, has the greatest tension between uh, the, a growing, the growing population of jihadists? I mean, obviously it's not just Paris, but you mentioned Toulouse. Is it, is it, is it regionally specific? Is it all over France? Can you just... Yeah, I wouldn't think any place is immune to it. I'd say it's obviously the cities with the biggest Muslim population is Marseille, where a Jewish professor was attacked with a machete by a 15-year-old boy about two weeks ago. Uh, Marseille has the biggest Algerian population in France. Lyon has a huge uh, Muslim immigrant population. There's been off and on a lot of tension there. Certainly Paris, all of the banlieue around Paris, that ring around Paris. Uh, the north, Roubaix, uh, has had a history of, of, sort of guys going off to fight in wars in Bosnia and Afghanistan and so on and so forth. Um, but, but recruits are coming from all over the country. And again, the stunning thing, which I mentioned in my talk just now, is that a quarter of them are converts to Islam. Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so just to, to bring it out to the, uh, uh, the American side, I mean, you've covered American politics. You, 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 you based yourself in Washington. You covered uh, uh, Barack Obama's first term. Uh, complicated legacy that he has, but it, it is a, a grand coalition between France and the US in the Syrian war. And what's your current assessment of what's, what's happening there? Well, they're doing something like 100 air raids a day combined. The Americans do a lot more than the French. When they wanted to drive the Serbs out of Kosovo in, in um, 1999, they were doing 800 bombing raids a day. Uh, likewise, when they wanted to bringing down um, Saddam Hussein in, in 2003, many, many, many times more bombing raids. So one concludes that they're not really serious about you know, destroying, eradicating Islamic State, as they say. No, they say that they have to be very careful, they don't want civilian casualties, they don't want that horrible phrase, collateral damage. Uh, that may be true, maybe they just don't have enough targets too, they don't know what to hit. Um, the French have specialized in bombing where they think the French jihadists are because they're afraid that these people will come back and attack France as they have indeed done repeatedly. Um, so the French are trying to hit the French guys. I think the British killed Jihadi John. Uh, you remember the Kuwaiti Muslims and, and so on. And the Americans are, you know, they're hitting their oil transport now and so on. But the problem is, as I said in my talk, they don't, they don't agree on anything. You know, the Turks want to fight the Kurds and, and not Islamic State. Um, the Russians want to fight uh, Bashar al-Assad's enemies and not Islamic State. Um, everybody has different, the, the, nobody can agree on what should happen to Bashar al-Assad. You know, so how can this coalition actually succeed when they don't agree on what they're doing or what, what they want to do and when they have, they won't send in ground troops so they have no way of holding territory if they get it back from Islamic State. So it's just, it's just a pure containment operation. And you mentioned in your paper, uh, do you feel it, the strength of Islamic State is, is, is plateauing out at the moment? Uh, um. It's really, 
that's maybe wishful thinking. I mean, the fact that they've had to reduce the salaries of their fighters is an indication that they, they've, they're on hard times. Um, certainly a lot of the Gulf Arabs who were giving them huge amounts of money have come under pressure to, to cut that back, to, to stop it. Um, but I don't think we've seen the last of them yet. I think they're pretty deeply entrenched. They have an area bigger than, than the United Kingdom. Um, you're 10 million people under their rule. And, and they showed last year what, the, what harm they can do. You know, the, the incredible reach that they have. Um, they, according to intelligence services quoted by people like Jane's you know, military magazine and, and media, um, they have a, a Bathist, former Bathist intelligence officer, you know, who worked for Saddam Hussein, is running their European operation, and he's appointed emirs, you know, bosses, uh, six of them by region for Europe. Abdul Hamid Abaoud, the, the guy who led the Paris attacks, who was a, a Moroccan Belgian, uh, was was the emir for France and Spain, and each of these emirs is. Uh, reportedly planning attacks in the countries that they've been assigned to. And, you know, with, with the millions and millions of Muslims in Europe, um, that, that's the really hard part because this is the enemy within and nobody knows how to deal with it. And then the greatest impact, of course, is on personal liberty in France. I mean, you described we, we, France is now in a permanent, well, my, my words, but a permanent state of emergency. Right. Um, François Mitterrand accused General de Gaulle of inventing the coup d'état permanent, the permanent uh, coup d'état, and this is the permanent state of, uh, of emergency, which is what I, you know, I, I witnessed and lived through in Arab dictatorships for decades. They would declare a, a state of emergency and it would last until the revolution. Uh, and that's almost what it feels like in France now. Okay, I invite a couple of questions. There's somebody at the back there, uh, Orla, and there's somebody in the middle here. And we'll take three questions, and then Larry will answer them together. So Thank you very much, Ms. Marlowe, for that excellent talk. I, I used to live in Paris and used to go to the Bataclan, and I don't think we should underestimate the, the uh, trauma that that's had on, on, the fr on French society. You mentioned Marseille a minute ago. Historically, Marseille has actually had a much more successful record of integration among cultures, has it not? Would you like to say a little bit more about laïcité and the exception culturelle and actually the nefarious consequences of those models on all of the cultural problems in France at the moment? Thank you. Somebody in the middle there, and there's one. Hey, um, I was just wondering. I read an article um, where a French communist was talking about fighting for Rojava um, and the Kurds, um, and I was wondering how common it was for people to be going over to fight against um, ISIS, and then also what you knew of um, internal resistance in the occupied territory um, under ISIS. Um, and, and also, sorry, this is a lot of questions, but um, just regarding what should, you know, attitudes towards refugees at the minute and how that can work out. Thank you. Okay. Let, let me take this okay, because I'll forget, I, I am not taking notes and I'll forget them all. Uh, laïcité. Um, well, you know, as I mentioned, there's a big debate now on the left among socialists who are the, the most keen, well, every, it's pretty much everybody in France is very keen on laïcité. Um, I would tend to side with the more open interpretation of laïcité, which is that it should be about coexistence between different religions and not about banning a religion 
and all forms of religion from society. I mean, um, one doesn't want to speak ill of the dead, and especially not of those who were massacred by Islamic State or, or Al-Qaeda in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, but the, the Charlie Hebdo was very militant, laicist, you know, secularist. These were people who, who, who turned laicite into a religion. Uh, and, and that's the danger that, that it be, when it becomes really confrontational, when, when people cannot bear any manifestation whatsoever of faith, when it becomes a form of intolerance, I think it's a dangerous counterproductive thing. Um, the question about people going and fighting with the Kurds against Islamic State, I've seen a few articles on, I, I think there probably are maybe half a dozen Frenchmen who've done that. I saw there were some Americans who've done that as well but I don't have the impression that it's a significant development. Um, as far as the, the refugee crisis and the war with Islamic State goes, um, when Marine Le Pen has said for years that migration carried terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism and, and militants and, and so on, um, like I think she said, like a, a cloud carries rain was her expression. And every, you know, very nice liberal people, you know, like oneself, you know, would, would sort of say, oh, this woman is extreme and she's horrible and she's racist and Islamophobic and so on and so forth. And then when the attacks, when Charlie Hebdo started, uh, well, well, started the year in January, and then the, I guess the big migrant influx would have started in more or less in the spring or summer, she kept warning people and saying, be careful because they're going to be jihadists coming in with these refugees. And people like me all said, this is nonsense, this is totally unfair, it's unjust to the refugees, you mustn't say such things, and so on and so forth. And as it happened, it turned out that um, at least two of the 10 attackers on November 11 came in with refugees. They were documented going to the Greek, uh, Greek island and then through Macedonia and Serbia and, and so on. So where does that leave you know, people like me who think that refugees should be um, taken in and taken care of and helped and, and that they're you know, a positive thing? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think the intelligence services, the officials, they have to do their best to sort out you know, the, the, the good eggs from the bad eggs. Um, I think the intelligence services failed really, really miserably in, in not detecting the return of the, the jihadists who did the November 13 attacks. But as I think it was Jean-Claude Juncker, the, the president of the European Commission said, you cannot punish hundreds of thousands of people you know, for something that 10 people did. And, and I think it would, it's, very, it's a danger that the, the refugees from this horrible war in Syria are going to suffer for the fact that the jihadists have used uh, the, the influx of, of, of refugees. Okay, thank you. So we've just run out of time. We'd like to give a warm thank you to uh, Lara Marlowe.